This Tome Show production is supported by Noble Knight Games, where out of print is available again, and by listeners like you. Keep using the affiliate links for Amazon and dndclassics.com and support the show while you shop. Welcome to the News Desk. Once a month, we get together to chat about our latest news in D&D, and your anchor today is Sam Dillon. That's me. And me as well, Jeff Greiner, and we're here to talk about the D&D news for May of 2013. Lending us a hand today is our randomly generated On the Street Reporter. Let me consult the encounter table here. Randall Walker! live, And he's live from... Yep, from. yep, that's what it says, the Dragon Spear Castle. <laughs> Randall's like, what? Where? What? <laughs> Wait, I think I know where that is, man. <laughs> Randall, what can you tell us about this Dragon Spear Castle place? Segway I, into first news item. Oh, wow, quick. Yes, boom, here we are, right here in the, in the, in the, um, in the Forgotten Realms. There is a castle, it is called Dragon Spear, and it is under attack constantly. From levels 1 through 10. <laughs> it's under attack uh, by levels? Yeah, levels are attacking it? It'll, it'll be under attack while your characters are level 1 through 10. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> the Ghost of Dragon Spear Castle is sort of the um, uh, rules so far for D&D Next compiled into one um, booklet. Um, I'm not sure if it's... I don't think it's hardcover. I think it's probably a softback. Um, Although it's, that, th- it's 30 bucks. Yeah, it's thirty bucks, but it looks like it's going to be—I I don't know—I don't. I really doubt it's a hardback, but I may be wrong. Well, but even uh, soft at thirty bucks, it better be more than just a booklet. And this is a Gen Con exclusive. Um, however, it's a little unclear, but it intimates that unless you pre-order it through Gale Force Nine, and there's a link on the article, which I think will probably be attached to the show notes for this. Um, you have to pre-order it and pick it up at Gen Con. Um, that is correct. That is my guess. I don't think they will be offering copies for sale at Gen Con, well, and it's certainly not available anywhere else. I suspect so, that. That's, um, I suspect that's fir- firmly a matter of how many pre-orders they get. That's probably true. I, I would yes. guess they'll have some there for, for a normal sale. Well, what but, is uh, absolutely true is that you cannot order it and not show up and get it sent to you. Right. If you do, if you don't show up, you get a refund. You don't get the book. Exactly. Right. So everybody uh, just contact me, and I'll go pick up your book for you. Ah, except only one. <laughs> I'll let Randall take. Okay. Take Sorry. <laughs> Trust me, I've been over this. Yeah. <laughs> let me. Um, I'll uh, read for you the brief uh, information I have here. It says Ghost of Dragon Spear Castle is D and D next preview and mini campaign comprised of four thrilling adventures designed to advance characters from first level to tenth level. The book contains everything a dungeon master needs to run the adventures, including D and D next game terms developed during the massive public playtest, monster stats, spell descriptions, magic item descriptions, background information on the coastal town of Daggerford, where the campaign is based, against the backdrop of the Sundering which, for those of you who are familiar with the Forgotten Realms, will know what that is. Brave adventurers must protect the town of Daggerford against an insidious foreign threat while forging alliances, exploring dungeons, and battling monsters. The action moves from the Lizard Marsh to the Orc-infested hills, finally culminating in a deadly altercation amidst the crumbling ruins of legendary Dragon Spear Castle. So. There you go. There you go. So it's so it's a two hundred page soft cover book for thirty bucks, limited one per customer. Okay. Something like that, yes. That sounds correct. Twenty nine ninety five is what I see here. Interesting, I have I have thoughts. 
Um, I think I it's an interesting marketing idea. Um, I don't know. I think it's a risky one. And I think it's risky because people – I think there are going to be people that assume these are. this is basically the game. Um, I – I won't know. I, I know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people will know that's not the case. But perception is reality. And when you see an actual hard book in your hands, it has a tendency to make people think, okay, well, this is it. And then they're going to come out with something later. People are going to go, you know, they're going to face palm um, and say, why did they do that? And I um, that's the risk. I'm not saying this is the case. I'm right. not saying this will so happen. I, I'm just saying that. I actually – I don't disagree with you, but I have some insight into that. Um, okay. As soon as this uh, this announcement was made last week or a couple weeks ago, um, there was there was a tweet conversation on Twitter uh, where it was asked of Mike Merles if D and D Next was the actual name of the next iteration of D and D, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because this this product has D and D, the two two red D's and the and gold dragon symbol and then it has D next rules on yep. it and um he basically said no it's not going to be called D next right and i believe um, that yeah. so right and so but so i guess what i'm saying is this is basically a standalone product right. in the middle of a play test and so it's going to be hard to confuse it with the actual core rules of the next iteration of D D because that won't be called D D next. Right. Right. Well and, and I feel I also feel like the way it sounds like to me, the way they've they've discussed this and and, and detailed this product, it, it feels a lot to me like like a, almost a quick start product. Pro- they're primarily telling you about the adventure. Look at this cool adventure. Oh yeah, we'll give you enough of the D D next rules that you can run it. But mostly we're selling you this cool adventure that's an, a Gen Con exclusive. You know what it's I mean? actually four short adventures, right? Right. Yes, it is actually. So it's yeah. But you gather my point. They're not they're not pimping this yeah. as as come check out the new D and D next rules. They're pimping this as come check out this cool adventure, and we'll give you just a, a brief sort of minor a, a little peek at the rules, um, you know, in order to play it with. So I think people I think the community is used to the concept of quick start rules at this point that they understand that quick start are not the same thing as. Full rules, so, yeah. so so it comes down to how they present it. So I mean, you're right; it could go really bad, or it could be very clear, just depending on how they format it all. My only concern is that, um, you know, is there precedent? Because the last time, you know, quick start rules for third edition were they were free. You know, you just downloaded it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no there was no pay thirty dollars. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I not everyone is there in the play I, press. So. Yeah, but uh, but that the difference there is that those quick start rules didn't include a four adventure campaign that takes no, you. No, no, there's first lots of material. Level. No, I get that. There's lots of material, and that's good. And, I mean, and, that's a good thing. And as much as I'm making an analogy to this being like quick start rules, I think there's also some differences too. I think it's somewhere between quick start rules and the um, the Pathfinder uh, beta playtest rules, which they. Bound together in a massive tome and sold for like forty bucks or whatever it was. That is true. So there, if there is precedent, then I have less of an yeah. issue with it. I'd forgotten that Pathfinder had done something like that. I'd, yeah. I, I, and, I, and it's a con exclusive, so it's not so, going out to the whole yeah. community. It's going out to. A, it's not like afterwards That's it's going right. to be like everybody's going to go out and get it because of what people said. No, because right. you weren't there, so right. it's gone now. One sweet bonus is that um, Gale Force Nine is providing a free miniature mm-hmm. 
so that when you pre-order and you pick it up, you'll get a free miniature with it. A, I love miniatures, so miniatures are cool. But it's uh, but it's not a D, it's not a pre-painted plastic D and D mini. Yeah, well, I you gotta, know, I got to find someone to paint it for me though. <laughs> but so uh, uh, so there's three things on the, from the FAQ for this product. Uh, that might be of some interest to the audience. Okay, let's do that and then um, move on. Okay, so w- one of the questions was, are these adventures covered under the NDA and playtest agreement? And can you go to Gen Con and buy the product if you have not ever played the playtest and, and therefore have not signed an NDA? And their response was, you do not need to be part of the playtest. There is no NDA implied with this book. You have it. It's out there. It's like a regular product. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing was there will be no retail purchase outside of Gen Con. Mm-hmm. Um, the question was then is there going to be a PDF version of this product or other ways to get those adventures available in the future? And they said at this time there are no plans to release this product as a PDF. Which leaves them the door open to, to or, change it. Or at it retail, later. right. So at this time means if it's a smash hit, they might repackage it later. Maybe they'll put them in Dungeon or Dragon magazine, things like that. But it, but they're not, they're not planning on it right now. Um, and the third thing is uh, the maybe the most important question, does this mean that the D&D Next rules are finalized? And, of course, the answer is not yet. The content found in this product is represents the iteration of the rules developed during this public playtest. Uh, there is a little bit more design development to do before finalizing. So they're just making it clear. They're covering all their bases. But that's buried at the bottom of a big FAQ page. Yeah. So it's not, necess- it's not something that's sort of out there on the product page. Mm-hmm. Um, Couple but, of, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, someone interested in the product, hopefully they'll be smart enough to, you know, look around and see yeah. And and figure out that it's not like the finalized yeah. version. And I think so. I think I mean given what it is and it's fairly unique and it's not as easy to get to as any given normal product. You know, I think you you have to do enough digging to to get to it that you've in, have innately done a little bit of research and know what you're getting. Yeah. So I have two final thoughts. Then we can move on if you'd like. Okay. Um, yep. One is. Um, despite all of uh, – not a lot of them, but despite my few reservations, I probably will buy this anyway. Um, I need some D&D Next material, and having stuff that goes from 1 through 10 is kind of useful. <laughs> so that's kind of handy. I'll probably get that anyway. Second thought is that I wonder if this is a bone to Forgotten Realms fans and that the default campaign will be Greyhawk. Yes! Oh, oh totally. um, Darn it. Well, I, I have one final <laughs> <laughs> One final thought about the I would love for Greyhawk to come back, for the record. Uh, but uh, my thought is, okay, I can't go to Gen Con, so I'm bummed out. Right. right? That's my thought. Yeah. And That's and I feel like it's it's um, you know, I understand the move. I, I understand why they're doing it from a business perspective. Um, you know, there was a Forbes article mm-hmm. and press release. I mean, this is this is big news. You know, but. Yeah. You know, I still feel I feel a little left out, you know, and and it's not like, right. you know, and because it's one per customer, it's not like I could say, hey, Jeff's my best friend and he's going to Gen Con, even though I can't make it this year, I'm going to get him to pick one up for me. I can't do that because of the rules. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I mean, you know, I'm I'm not one of those people that tends to whine or something, but it's just one of those things where, you know, I'm I have a big RPG collection and I would love to have this sitting on my shelf and I'm pretty much locked out of it through no fault of my own. Sure. It it makes this a a um you know, there's a separation between the haves and have nots, which, you know, like I said, I understand from the marketing perspective. So there you go. That's well, and, and they've, there's been a there's been a precedent in the history of, of doing special con stuff too. It's oh, only, absolutely. It's only available sure. at the con. So 
Okay, moving on. Speaking of Gen Con, they've released all of their uh, and and I mean over the course of the last month, right? They've they released all of their event schedules and what they're doing at Gen Con and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, of course, that's available to everybody at this point, right? And, and easy to find because event registration has already happened. But they had some, some I think, interesting-looking things on there. If people uh, are still looking for things to do at Gen Con, um, they're doing a night with Dungeons & Dragons, a four-hour Thursday night event where you get together and, and have, have a meal and drinks and, and play some games with uh, designers and authors and, and other you know, D&D folk, mm-hmm. um, which is the only, I think, in four years now of going to Gen Con, I think it's, this is the only time I've actually spent money on, on tickets because I thought that looked cool. <laughs> so I'm nice. doing that. Um, but then there's also the, the Ghost of Dragonspear Castle adventure that we were just talking about, that they're, they'll be running that all weekend or different parts of that all weekend. Um, and they, they've done some interesting things. And, and along with that, there's a bunch of other adventures um, and things that they're running as well. Um, the, the, the Lost City, I see. They're doing some Lords of Waterdeep with the new uh, expansion on there. Uh, a Candlekeep adventure, uh, a Baldur's Gate adventure, all kinds of stuff going on there. Uh, but I thought, thought it was interesting that they're also doing a they're doing a D and D next all access adventure pass, and it's it's not cheap. Um, it's like I'm trying to remember now when I was registering for events, it was like a hundred bucks or a little more. Um, Ouch! What does that get you? But it gets you what is it? Eight hours of gaming available to you every single day of the convention, mm. or almost eight hours of gaming. Uh, eight hours, eight hours, eight hours, and then four hours the last day, um, and and it's basically running through. I think it's running through like the entirety of the Dragonspear Castle, and there might be some exclusives available to you, and character creation is part of it, and you're playing with the same DM the whole time. So it's almost like you go for the for the weekend um, and run through a whole campaign. It's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> wow. If That's I wasn't doing cool though, yeah. If I wasn't doing other stuff, you know, if I wasn't recording seminars and stuff for the podcast, it actually looks really cool. That looks like something that would be right up my alley. That's for a true D and D fan, right there. Oh yeah. That that's pretty sweet. Yeah. I'm too much of a social butterfly to commit that much time <laughs> to the game. I had, I had originally asked Greg um, uh, on Twitter about that, and, Greg he, and I asked Wilsland? him. Uh, yes, th- sorry, thank you. Yeah, Greg Wilsland. I asked him about that. And I thought maybe is that split up or is that like different sessions? You know, like a morning session and an evening session over it those looks four like days. It is. And he goes, "No, he goes that's solid continuously <laughs> all the way through." Yeah, goes, as, as, wow. I, as I'm looking at it, it shows Thursday eight to twelve and two to six. So it looks like there's a, a break in there. Yeah, do there's you, a break. They, but my point is that it's still the yeah. same group. It's not like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you better like the people you're in with. <laughs> Apparently, really, because yeah. you're with well, them all yeah. weekend. That's pretty cool, though. Still, I yeah. think you know that's that's an experience. That is a singular experience. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. will jump on that. I think it'll be cool. I, I look forward to hearing from people about how it went. Uh, beyond that, they're doing their normal round of seminars, although like half the seminars they normally do. Um, they're, they're really going seminar light this year. and They're all in the afternoon, so that means no early mornings for me. I'm excited about that. And I think that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and, yeah. It's, and it's just a lot lighter. I mean, it, they're doing the spinning yarn with Ed Greenwood. They're doing D&D Digital, uh, a chat with Salvatore, uh, a Q&A with R&D, and then Forgotten Realms, you know, sundering stuff, right? Uh, and that's pretty much it. Um, so it leaves a lot of open space for me as as a podcaster that records all these things. And, and if you're not able to go to Gen Con or are busy doing other things like the the all all adventure pass, whatever that was, uh, all access adventure pass, um, you know, I'll have all those recorded, and, and Sam will get them up on the on the feed as soon as uh, as soon as he can get yep. to them. Same as last year and the year before, we yep. have, we will bring you three solid years of full on Gen Con D and D goodness. Right. 
Uh, and then because they're going lighter from Watsi, um, I'm also going to use the, the, my mornings then to go to the seminars from, uh, what is it, Kobold, Kobold Press now? Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It used to be Kobold Corbly. Well, yep. Yeah, it used to be Open Design and Kobold Corbly, and now it's just Kobold right. Press or whatever it is. Yeah, okay. so uh, they've got four seminars going on um, in the mornings, and so I'm going to go and record all of those too. Oh, good. So. Wolfgang Bauer's a good guy. Yeah, and I like the stuff that they're doing, so I'm glad that we can expand our coverage to there. All right, okay. that's it for my stuff. Sam, you're up. All right. Well, uh, I have a very short announcement, and that is that uh, on May 23rd, they released the announcement that there will be a new free-to-play mobile game developed and published by DNA. That's the the developer for the actual Mm. mobile platform. That's D-E-N-A. But the D, the N, and the A are capitalized, so Mm -hmm. DNA. Uh, And it is going to be called Arena of War. It will be set in the Forgotten Realms, and it is pretty battle-intensive, apparently, but but qualifies as an RPG. So it's going to be a mobile platform RPG. It's going to be released on the iPhone, the iPad, and Android. So it's hitting all the major bases there, which is good news because, mm-hmm. frankly, I have an Android tablet, and it really – Irks me when something really awesome gets released only for the iPad. <laughs> um, and uh, but apparently you can you can register uh, you can pre-register for it even though it's free you know but they they want to be able to send you marketing releases and things like that so if you pre-register you get uh, some character upgrades and things like that uh, that are exclusive to people who pre-register for the game so mm-hmm. we'll put a link on the show notes and uh, there's a nice little piece of art I, I'm I'm assuming it's it's it says battle intensive oh and it mentions that uh, on the actual in the in the sort of Watsi announcement it links to the actual um press release and it mentions that you know you'll you'll have you can uh play against other players you can play as team you can play solitarily so it's it's apparently a a pretty extensive game so Mm -hmm. i'm kind of looking forward to it yeah it'll be interesting to see what they do we're ready to check it out cool i I signed up for the i I pre-registered I probably will not be playing it. It always it always makes me a little nervous when they're the free to play games always make me a little nervous because mm-hmm. it means they're going to be trying to upsell me through the whole game. Oh yeah, and that drives me crazy. Right? You know, I, I, yeah. I would almost rather just pay yeah. a few dollars and get the game and then not have to deal with you know the in app purchases mm-hmm. and and all. Right. right. Yeah. Well, but you know that's that's the latest uh, the latest craze, right? In app purchases are are real money makers for for these games. Well, uh, unless I, of course I'd, I'd be curious. <laughs> I'd yeah. be curious. I don't know uh, if it In, is. Unless you're but what, Randall? What you Unless say? of course you're Zynga, yeah. who just fired well, right. five hundred well, people. So. Well, yeah. and that's what I'm saying is that I, I think it's yeah. the, it's the new thing that everybody's trying. Uh, I don't know that you know. I think the, the bottom line is the the way to make money in in these games is make a good game that people want to play. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and then if you charge a couple of bucks, they'll they'll spend a couple of bucks, you know, and they won't have to to do the in-app purchases. Or a few in-app purchases are fine if they're reasonable, you know. But anyway, that's where I'm at. Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't make in-app purchases, so you know, <laughs> it's one of those things that really kind of turns me off of, right. of, of a game. If there's too many little things that pop up and say, "Oh, do this, buy this for," right. you know, even if it's ninety nine cents, I don't care. I'm not going to go. Right. You know, there's a few. There's a, there's a few that I'll do um, for good reason. If if you know if you offer you know a free version and then upgrade it to a pro version with more features for with an in-app purchase, okay, that might be worth it. You know, because yeah. that lets me try the free version and then not have to not you know then I don't have to like 
delete it and, and download the, the pro version, right? I can just upgrade the version I have. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, when, it's, so. when it's going from a free version to the full-on ad-free version, I don't mind that. Yeah. It's the thing where you're playing the game and in the middle of the game, you're at a certain point oh, and yeah. it pops up a little ad that says, hey, you know, you can get this extra bonus thing, yeah. whatever. You're out, you're out of energy. Buy some more potions to, get mo- to keep playing. Right. Right, and I and I don't. I just don't like. No, that. yep, I agree. <laughs> all right, all right. We can end our conversation on that. <laughs> well, before we get too much further, we should mention our sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Our pick of the episode is issue number one of Gygax Magazine, which you can now get for only eight dollars. It is uh, designed – this magazine is designed to suit role players of many sorts. Uh, the first issue is a little bit RPG heavy, but it is meant to be a full-on tabletop magazine. In the first issue, they tell lots of stories about D&D's past and present, so it, it's a really enjoyable issue to read. Um, there is some support also for things like Pathfinder and the AGE system, which is what Dragon Age is, is built on. Um, so check it out at Noble Knight Games, and be sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today! And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. And now we get into the in-depth topics. Ten minutes on the clock... Sam, you're up. All right. Well, what I wanted to talk about, uh, hopefully generate some conversation, is one article that was uh, published on – that's the Mike Merles' Legends and Lore article that was published on May 20th. And in it, he talks specifically about exploration and interaction. And um, you know, since the very beginning of this playtest, uh, they have – they when I say they, I mean the R&D team – they have been talking about the three pillars of D&D. And the three pillars of D&D are exploration, interaction, and combat. And then for the next several months, we heard mostly about things that have directly to do with combat. As we um, do not, in d not, What's that? <laughs> As we tend to do in D&D. As we tend to do in D&D, because D&D is, is a combat-heavy... It's, it's an RPG with a heavy combat focus. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not, I don't mean it as a bad thing. Right. Um, but... Uh, now that those rules are really getting hashed out and, and the class structures are getting hashed out and all that sort of gets integrated together, now they're, they're taking the time to really uh, investigate exploration and interaction. So what this article is discussing is how – what the basic model is for exploration. And what Merles says in the article is – they want to have simple, basic rules that allow for specific actions and turn sequences for exploration that put it in a framework that allow the DM and the players to interact in a smooth, flexible way that adds to the game 
rather than having to stop, you know, uh, everything that I've read, it, it doesn't explicitly say that, but basically everything I've read is they really want this game to have smooth transitions from combat to role-playing. Mm. And, and, and role-playing in combat and out of combat and exploration and interaction and role-playing in both of those. They, I think they want it to be as smooth as possible. At least that's the, that's the impression I get. And basically the first part of this article is a bullet-pointed list of things that they have – tried to put into the rule set for D&D Next that allows that to occur. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I'm, I'm curious <coughs> on, like they talk about how um, for overland travel, they, they want to do everything in sort of one hour increments, you know, around or whatever is one hour. Right. Yeah. And that for dungeon exploration, it's one minute increments. <coughs> what are you doing in those, in those rounds that requires those sorts of increments? Well, so... Because <laughs> that's, that's something... Because the... the you know, I've I've been using the playtest rules, but but because it's a playtest document, you don't you, you don't read it cover to cover, right? So right. when you need a rule, you look it up. I never looked up exploration or interaction rules because I've just been doing them the way I've always been doing them. So I never bothered mm-hmm. to look them up. Right. Um, well, so I believe I'm now I'm looking through my playtest document mm-hmm. trying to find the exact. Uh, I mean, there's certain there's there's implications sort of if you read between the lines that there's you know different actions you could take like navigating or whatever. Um. Mm-hmm. So he mentions that, and and I, to be perfectly honest, I I'll have to look up the page again because I was mm-hmm. looking at it right before this podcast, but I, I didn't uh, commit the page to memory, so I don't I'm not exactly sure uh, which thing that it's uh, ad- that it's that it's addressing. But the way that this article describes it, it seems like it's saying that there are certain actions that you that you can perform when you're doing those things. And really, I think it's just a framework that allows the DM to figure out, well, how much can you really do before you get fatigued or before you, you know, if you get lost, you know, obviously if you're fatigued, you're probably more likely to get lost. So what are the rules around that? Things like that, Um, which actually leads us to, um, you know, he, he talks about optional rules for weather and for environmental dangers, for you know, starvation and thirst and all those things. That's why you need hourly increments mm-hmm. because you need to know how long it's been since the last meal or how long it's been since you ran out of water or how long it's been since you've been you – know, since you ran out of your last torch or you know, things like that. Um, it it, also, a, it also feels uh, almost perfectly designed to, to do like a random encounter system, right? But – Right. But but I don't want I don't want to do random encounters on an hourly increment. Right, I mean, but this isn't <laughs> about right. I don't think this is about random encounters because this is strictly non-combat issues. This is non-combat related because as soon as you do, you're talking about random encounters. You're talking about if it's a combat related random encounter, you're talking about combat, and then you switch to the combat timelines well, and things right. like that. So I'm just talking about how I don't often think, they occur. Yeah, um, but so so one of the one of the things that struck me about this article, the last bullet point says most importantly. We will integrate these rules into classes, monsters, backgrounds, and feats where appropriate. For example, rangers can't get lost while traveling as long as they navigate. And then he points out that the, that, that last bullet point actually is his the, – the biggest sort of most important one for him in terms of exploration because it formalizes exploration and, it, quote, in a way that makes it just as much a part of the game as combat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so – um, so I like the idea of trying to put things like generalized exploration mm-hmm. and the activities you do when you're doing that into a format that makes it seem as important as combat. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last time 
we had a non-combat thing put into a framework <laughs> that tried to yeah. make it as important as combat. They did not do a very good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other, the other thing about that, and now that's not to say that, and I think they know that. Okay, because right. a lot of the problem with the skill challenge system, which is what I'm talking about, in case right. you didn't pick that up, the the one of the problems with that was the presentation at the beginning of the release of fourth edition. By the time they got to essentials, they were presenting it a lot better, and it still had its issues, but it made a lot more sense by then. Um, the the thing that's the problem with this for me is that um, it's adding in all of these backgrounds and feats and all that stuff, and these are things that um, I thought were optional. So does that mean that part of these exploration rules are also optional? I mean, other than the ones that are obviously optional, like weather and environmental heat, cold, right? Are they optional? Like, I, I, this article is great, it's, but it's sort of non-informative because it doesn't tell me about how these are really going to be integrated well, into the system in terms of, you know, it's, how it's going to work. It's D&D, so. right? So everything's optional. Right. Well, well of course. <laughs> it yeah, always I, has been. Yeah, I, I know, I know, but... The only um, part of D&D that's not optional is your D20. <laughs> yeah, but I think Sam's certainly speaking from the design aspect. No, 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 so, I get that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's the issue, right? I mean, ex- exploration, exploration and interaction are, are parts of the game that are very important. But at the same time, we've been doing them for so long without formalized rules that I feel like having formalized rules, especially like for exploration and travel, I oftentimes am looking for some information about, oh, they're going this far, and I always have to think through, okay, well, how far can they get, and what's what's going on, and what could happen along the way or whatever, right? It'll be nice to have a, a set place to go to look at and talk about and think about those things. However, formalized rules um, still have to be fun. And, right. and you know, primarily the fun of D&D has been the combat rules and then the parts where the rules get out of the way. And that's been exploration right. and inter- interaction. So if they can do these rules in a way that, that adds to the fun and adds to the clarity without, you know, getting bogged down in rules that are unnecessary, then I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, I, I am too. And um, I guess my biggest problem with this article is that I haven't seen it in action yet, really. Right. And, no, that's, that's exactly uh, right. Yeah, and and so and and with the interaction part, you know, he talks about how there are now categories that 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 describe NPC traits, fears, goals, mannerisms, um, how to use uh, charisma checks. Which actually, in the in the DM guidelines for the playtest, there's actually a really good several pages on how to use attribute checks. And under the charisma check, you know, it tells you how you know what kind of things you would do with charisma. Right. Um, gathering rumors, bluffing, intimidating, performing, persuading, and it gives you know h- how you would sort of adjudicate that in terms of what what is what is being attempted and and how hard that might be for a particular character. So it gives really good direction in that sense. Um, but then the next, the very next page after that, it talks about ability checks and interaction. Uh, and it's only like four paragraphs. Doesn't really tell you all this stuff he's saying in the article. So I think this is from a future, yeah. for f- for a future uh, playtest packet. But he talks about how you know you can the DM can classify an NPC as hostile, neutral, or friendly. That can change based on interaction. And it sounds like it sounds fantastic because it sounds basically like the way that I do things in general anyway, except without a specific chart. Maybe depending on you know what I'm doing and how they actually present this information. Um, well, it sounds but, like they're great guidelines, right? I but, mean, but I think it's still up. To, right. Yeah, I think it's still up to each individual DM 
to determine how their NPCs are going to act in any given situation, but that when it comes down to when you're designing your campaign, here are some guidelines. If you've never done this before, these are the kind of things we're considering. And I do like that the the guidelines they have for interaction are a lot less swingy than what a lot of people have done historically and traditionally. You know, a lot of times, you know, you got the guy who really hates you, but then somebody nails the role and the DM goes, oh, that's awesome. And and now he suddenly loves you and he's your best friend. Well, that's not really realistic. And and these interactions rules tell you what can be awesome you know from that role without necessarily going right. so far as um, you're, you're the guy who hated you now is in love with you or whatever right. right well and he basically says that the the goal is to make this as structured as possible and leave it as flexible as possible as well and that's a fine line to walk right yep. right but it seems like they're doing a really good job of it but of course that's based on this one article not on playtest. Right. So my group is just about to move into D&D next, and hopefully the next playtest will have more specific interaction rules in mm-hmm. it than, than what I have read so far, and we'll see how that actually plays out. Very good. Speaking of fine lines, Randall, hit my points. Hit, hit my point. So this is an, an article from the third, actually just yesterday, that hit for Legends of Lore, and it's all about hit points and how people are, perceive hit points. Um... I don't know. I have a lot of feels about hit points, mainly because I've been playing the game for a long time. And one of the reasons I was so quiet during Sam's um, article was because I was frantically looking through my first edition DM guide to find the quote about how hit points have been described. And Mm. it's very simple. How they have been described (laughs) or how they were described 30 years ago? How they were described. Okay. (laughs) Um, And what set the course for their use from then on. And it's simply that they don't represent pure physical damage, mm-hmm. but also fatigue and wear, and also the con- consumer. Cons- what's the word? Consummate. Yes, consummate skill that you have as you gain in levels. He's, and um, it's really no more complicated than that. And the article, I think, overthinks it. Uh, I, I'm concerned about that because I mean I like the first two point or the first couple of bullet points those make sense. I say the first couple of bullet points seem right in line with what you just described. Right, it does. Um, in fact, that first sentence pretty much sums up really uh-huh. all you need to worry about hit points. I, I like the fact that they're considering that you really kind of need to logically heal wounds. Um, I mean, receiving a spell or drinking potions is one thing, or you rest for a long time. Um, and I like the fact that they're considering rest in the dungeon or outdoors doesn't take you to your full hit points because you can't get that good solid rest when you're still trying to survive right. the environment that you're in, mm-hmm. which I think is a great idea. Actually, I, I like that idea as well. Um, I thought that was really I, cool. I do. It also, uh, it also, by the way, highlights the importance then of magical healing and that kind of stuff because you can still right. completely heal up with a full with a full night's rest or whatever right but it's because you've got a healer in the party who's doing that for you naturally right, exactly. you don't do that yes exactly mm-hmm. um so uh, i'm trying to think now where i had oh yeah you get down further here and you start talking about these um other play options mm-hmm. and i don't know i just I, I, I get to the point where if you want to play a different game and you know like a you know a tabletop uh, you know a miniatures war game or something like that 
change up how you do your hit points. But uh, but it seems such a fundamental part of the game for me. Now, a lot of people aren't going to agree with this, but for me, it's such a fundamental part of the game. Make it standard. One thing. There's one rule about hit points, and that's how they work. Well, if you I, want to do something else, fine. I think but. I think they are doing that, though. I think they are having one standard rule about how you do hit points. There's, but they're saying there's different options as how you recover hit points. And but I think see, that's, that's just it. That totally throws off. I don't know that it does because hit points uh, have every every single edition has been completely different on how you recover hit points. So you can't tell me there's one way to do it that's D and D because all of those are D and D, and none of them are the same. I don't know. So, and, like and, I said, I do. I know that there won't be a lot of people oh, yeah. who will agree with me. <laughs> and I think that's. <laughs> I, I think if you look at those options, can you find a version that works for you? Um, or the options, or the core, you know, the core assumption that he described. And it, I've it, never, I've never liked the quick hit point refreshes. Okay, then don't do I that. Hate, yeah, I think those are. You know, I, I just I, don't, I don't care. I think, I think you can not do that and still be playing D&D and still be playing your game. And I think that's okay. Um, you know, I, I feel like one of the, the things that I think uh, I really enjoy doing is if I'm going to do a specific setting, I'm going to make some tweaks to the story I'm telling and what fits with that setting. Well, I guess this is where my concern is, uh, Jeff. I think that uh, these options are fine. If you specify that... If you're going to play the game like this, mm-hmm. use this system. No, right, and I think but that's the, the idea. The default should be something else. Not, I don't want. I, I don't think DM should get the idea that they can just throw whatever system they want in their regular game of D and D because I don't think that's well. Okay, I, I don't know. I good, just I, good good DMs are going to approach it as this is the kind of game I'm playing. What rules will fit that? And and DMs who aren't necessarily that great or not that experienced in some cases are always going to, going to just throw in whatever they think sounds cool because that's the way they've always been and that's the way they always are going to be and that's how they learn and that's okay. And that's great for DMs. The problem is when you get players that know about these other options that exist and say, well, I want the fast healing option. No. <laughs> sure. Because that's not the campaign. But my point is is that there, if that underlying assumption is quashed <laughs> that the players have a choice there – or, or oh yeah, yeah. it's not I'm player being, choice. I, my language here is more brutal than it really should be. You know, I, I'm not a hard ass about it. But my point is, is that I guess there should be some kind of understanding that this is the general default assumption, and then there are other ways to play the game that maybe these other hit point strategies will work for mm-hmm. you. Absolutely, no, I, I don't disagree. I, I guess maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's what they're aiming for now. They can't control what the community does and how and how people well, use it. Well, right? sure, but, absolutely. Yeah. But they, but you're right in that they can present it a certain way to to send a certain message and how good they're going to do with that or not. You know, we have yet to see. Yeah, and a lot of that a lot of that messaging I think is hard for them. Is, go, is going to be difficult for them, not just for hit points, for, but in general with all these optional things that they're throwing out. They're yeah. going to have a, a hard time sending a clear message about what to do and, and how to do it. Because of the long playtesting process, that some people have been picking up messages this whole time that may not be what the messages messages that they really want them to pick up. You know, yeah. that's one of the reasons I'm in favor of of when you're introducing a new what they're calling a module uh-huh. um, to actually incorporate that into a module, <laughs> as we know the term. <laughs> in other words. In other words, if you have a special campaign or or right. a module setting, uh, like for example, the 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 expression or the example they used early in the article was on Ravenloft, 
then maybe you set up the rules of Ravenloft. And the Ravenloft that may, module. In, and maybe that implies a different set of rules for hit points. Or at the you know? very least, you know, if you have the, the hit point module, you know, it's a, it's a maybe, I don't know, a 10-page short PDF that, that they sell for a dollar or whatever, right? Uh, then every time they give an option, then they can exp- specifically outline this is the option you would use if this is the kind of game you're trying to run, the kind of right. story or the kind of setting that you're in. Uh, and this is how it's going to affect your game mechanically and some changes you might need or some things you might need to keep in mind to do it. Right? right, I think I, th- I think there's two approaches. I think you're you know going here's the setting and here's the optional rules that go with it, or going with here's the optional rules and this is the kind of settings it can work with. I think either one works as long as they're clear with what they're doing. Right, right, sure. Well, and I think that that's part of the problem with a play test is that if we are completely 100 percent honest, we really have no idea how they're going to present these yeah, ideas. Absolutely. I mean, we know what they're saying in the articles. We know what it says in the playtest. We know, you know, how they're presenting it to the fans who are doing a playtest or who they are assuming are doing a playtest, and for the in- other interested parties. But we don't really know how this is going to be set up. Mm-hmm. You know, which is which is part of the problem that I had with my article, the exploration and interaction, because they I don't, don't really know. know how it's going to be presented. And pre- presentation was a lot of the problem with skill challenges and it's also a lot of the problem with a modular system and with hit points because that's a a really big concerning issue with a lot of people it's one of those things about addition changes it's one of the items in addition changes that cause people to to have a problem or to have a a gut instinct about or or a or a a reaction to visceral reaction to a change in a rule set because that's something that's very specifically for whatever reason it's very personal Mm -hmm. you know how how hit points are are determined and 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 gained back and lost in a game that's mostly focused on combat or or at least a large focus on combat i don't want to say mostly because i don't want to imply that it's all about combat but you know that's a very a very important thing, and so you know we really don't know how they're going to present it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yep. All right. Good stuff. Good articles. We're gonna, we're gonna finish. Yeah. We're gonna finish yeah. you forty seven <laughs> seconds early then. Ooh. <laughs> and we're gonna Sweet. we're gonna start my chat. And my chat is all about um, evil things from other planes. Um, I'm gonna start with uh, the wandering. I'm gonna do two. Well, I have two wandering monster articles pulled up uh, of. Areas of particular interest for me, uh, and we'll see how much time we have to get through them. But I'm going to start with the Demonic Cults Wandering Monster article, where he's talking about three well-known uh, demon lords, and sort of his, uh, and, and by him I mean the author James Wyatt, who's in charge of a lot of the story development and what they're doing with the story of D&D Next. Um, he's got three different demon lords, and, and sort of lays out his idea of where they, who, who they are, and where they come from, and what kind of um, themes that they tie into uh, and I'm curious on you and your guys' take on some of them because he starts with Demogorgon and the very first line of, of Demogorgon is Demogorgon is sort of the Cthulhu of D&D uh, <laughs> 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 alright so my, re- my immediate reaction was similar <laughs> okay yeah um, good 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 yeah um, because I don't need a Cthulhu of D&D if I did I'd have I guess Cthulhu you know, you, there's no reason you couldn't put Cthulhu in D&D, I suppose. Right. Um, without having to tie into the whole demon thing. Um, but, I mean, I, as he describes it, and he goes on for four paragraphs describing it, um, th- there are some definite parallels. And I think that's okay to have parallels. But let's not think of him like the, the Cthulhu of D&D. You know, 
Um, yeah, there's, that's a very, that has a whole lot of baggage. That oh, tentacles yeah. tentacles on Demogorgon do not make him Cthulhu. Well, and 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 there's that's the thing. There's conversation about about the whole <laughs> issue with madness, uh, the two headed. Uh, nature of Demogorgon and how he's crazy and how his followers are oftentimes driven insane and that kind of stuff. Okay, well, there's there's a parallel there, I suppose. Um, uh, that that um, Demogorgon's cultists, you know, um, never really interact with Demogorgon himself. You know, if you're summoning, if you're summoning, trying to summon Demogorgon, you're probably going to get one of his servants at best, if anything at all. Um, if you ever were to actually summon, the very last line is if if if. He, if he ever were summoned to the material plane, it would be like Cthulhu rising from Raleigh or Godzilla coming to Tokyo, an unstoppable force of destruction. It's like, eh, I don't know that I see it that way either. <laughs> you know? I, I, yeah, I don't see that. Yeah. So, I mean, how do they handle – did they go back and look? I mean – and Jeff, you might have familiar, some familiarity with this. Didn't they do a whole campaign in the Forgotten Realm with Orcus coming back? In the Forgotten Realms? Yeah. Wasn't there a, a whole series of adventures, or at least a one big adventure? Uh, there was a series of adventures in Fourth Edition dealing with Orcus. Uh, it wasn't in the realms. I think. No, see, it, I was, I think, no this I think was, was just second, generic. This was that second edition. That wasn't Minter Vale. Oh, in second oh, edition. Oh well, then I, I don't know. Mm, yeah, I don't okay. either. I'm not a. I'm not up on all the modules from second I, edition. I played a lot of second edition, but yeah, we didn't do a lot of modules. There were only right. a handful of modules we used. Sorry, I, I just I didn't no, digress there, but yeah, I mean, it seems to me that that's been Demon Lords coming to you know, and of course, Ayus, who was actually demigod, right. <laughs> coming well, to Greyhawk. That, I mean, that's, that's the been thing. Well, well treated. So. That's the thing for me is that Cthulhu is by its nature outside of the idea of divinity, right? Whereas demons yeah. for me are intrinsically connected to the pantheon and the concept of divinity. You know, uh, so th- uh, I was going to say kind of the opposite of that, I guess, but maybe uh, I'll keep keep going. Wait, say, I mean, d- say that again. The demons and devils are, are are by their nature connected to the concept of divinity in, in a fantasy world. You know, because I mean that's the origin of where demons and devils come from, right? Is is um, oh well, I, I in that case, yes, I yes, see. What they're, they're not alien things from outside of the world; they're directly right. connected to things you already know. They're a lot no, more familiar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I agree with right? that. Sure, sure. sure. Um, yeah, so. Um, trying to make a, a demon more alien and unknowable, and just a, a primal force of destruction doesn't quite feel right to me. But yeah, to me, Thera's Dune is as close to Cthulhu as you're going to get. Or again, how about Cthulhu? I mean, if you want to have the Cthulhu, well, sure. there's no yeah, reason right. you can't just I put mean, him put him in there. You know? Well, other than you know, uh, you know, trademark infringement. Well, yeah, right. yeah. Watson, Watson can't do it, but we can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I know that. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, that's the whole. Um, in fact, there are the, you'll have some DMs that would argue that Cthulhu is inappropriate for D&D because it would just wreck your campaign. Well, and that's fine, that, too. I mean, it's a, very, it's, it's a very different style of gaming. Right. That goes part and parcel to, you know, a horror-type um, uh, campaign that's, you know, full of dread, fear, and insanity, which all, may be suited for other types of gameplay. Although, that said, D&D has certainly moved closer and closer <laughs> to its own fantasy version of Cthulhu-like things over the last several Decades. I mean, oh, with the Far Realm, absolutely. And even before that, I mean, with with the the influx of mind flayers and, and all these other things that turned into Far Realm stuff, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, well, you know, there was a Cthulhu entry in the original deities and demigods, but they had to take it out. Right. Yeah, that's right. So that's that's not really something new. It's always been an option. All right, so let's move on to the next one and see if see if you guys just like that one too. I mean, not not to move us on, but we've talked five yeah, and a no, half, five and a half yeah. minutes on one one part well, of one article. For, 
for for the record, I I really like my first response to the Demogorgon is Cthulhu was like what? Yeah, I I didn't. I, I think this is probably the first Wandering Monsters article where I think Wyatt missed the mark. Yeah. So so moving on, let's see if he misses the mark on the next one. He talks about Baphomet. Okay. And the the literary, I guess, connection that he makes to Baphomet is, is Mr. Hyde of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay. Right. Except he says that, and then in his description, I would argue he doesn't really support that. Okay, he's saying, he's comparing it to Mr. Hyde in that it's, he, Baphomet sort of represents um, the dark inner self, you know, the... That resist the uh, let me I'll just read here the dark inner self who resists the strictures of conventional morality and polite behavior and indulges in violence. Okay, well I can sort of see that parallel, but again, it's not a perfect analogy, right? Because the part of the whole concept of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde is that you went back and forth and you never you were out of control of your of your own self, right? And you didn't like it. Well, this doesn't have any of that. Uh, it's just sort of basically saying, well, he's he's sort of the the god of people who do what they want and are vi- very violent, you know. All right. Um, I see what he's saying with his with the paragraph right above that, where he's talking about mm-hmm. a group of nobles who mm-hmm. who by day are looked at as oh those are the nobles they're upstanding noble oh, citizens, and then at night they are doing these horrible depraved savage things yeah, to sure. innocent townsfolk and imprisoning. That's where the Mister Hyde thing comes in. But I, I get your line of thought too, where yeah. it doesn't he doesn't do a good job of making the connection. Right. If yeah. if Jekyll and Hyde, I mean, if the char- if that character had developed his own cult following, then maybe I could have seen a connection here. <laughs> right. But that totally breaks it because because that scientist, you know, uh, Jekyll, and then Hyde was a solitary acting person. He, he represented just the. I mean, I can see the bestial quality right. uh, of man, that primitive, you know, type of thing. I can see that, but eh, the literary reference is a little rough. Well, right, and, and that's what I, because when I when I see Mister Hyde in reference to Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, I, I instantly go to sort of a an issue of personal horror because that's what I really feel like that that, that character is about is this horror of of what I what I can't stop myself from doing, right? And that's not really what Baphomet is all about, and that's not what he's using Baphomet as. Although the the connection he makes, and, and, and as you pointed out, Sam, um, with that paragraph before, it, okay, I, I see where, where he's going there. Uh, then the last one is Grazd, and he talks about Grazd being connected to the concept of the Salem witch trials. Um, also, sort of, he envisions sort of these decadent nobles uh, worshiping this this demon prince. Um, Quote, as little more than an excuse to indulge in all their carnal appetites. So I kind of get where he's going there as well, I guess. Except that when I think of the Salem Witch Trials, I don't think about decadent nobles. No, I don't either. So, so I think he's struggling with analogies here. I think I think his specific yeah. descriptions of some of these these demon lords or demon princes um, are, are closer than the analogies he's trying to make. Was this the art design guy who did this? No, this is uh, Wyatt. James, James, James Wyatt. Wyatt. Okay, yeah, I, yeah, I don't see the literary references at all. I mean, his descriptions of what the demons themselves are like, uh, except with maybe Demogorgon. Demogorgon. I, I get that. Gratz has always been depicted as. Um, a, a lustful type demon. He's the sexy demon, right. yeah. And, exactly it's, and right. it even points out like Gras likes siring children and spreading his influence and his likeness throughout the yeah. plans. That's a so. spot on, but everything else is kind of eh. 
Yeah, exactly. So I hope they 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 take a careful look at the historic, you know, uses of those demons and how they've been portrayed and and kind of maintain what they are. I've mm-hmm. never I've been always pretty happy with what they've done, and and in fact, I actually liked the way they kind of moved Demogorgon. I don't know if it was more in third edition or if they did some of it fourth, but but they did it with um, you know kind of an undersea theme. You know, Ixasachital, those guys all followed him, you know, those manta ray creatures, um, and other types of creatures from the deep, you know, giant squid and stuff like that. And and I think those were very appropriate. I thought those made right. a lot of sense. Right. Are, are you thinking of a different one? No. Demogor- sure. Demogorgon's the two headed monkey guy. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Okay. But he I, has an undersea he has a he has a, a layer of the abyss, at least. I thought you were one. thinking of somebody else. Who's the who's the one, the no. big fish one that I was thinking of? That uh, Dagon? Huh? You, oh no no no! You're not, yeah. okay. no. I thought you were thinking no. Dagon. No. Okay. Demogorgon is described as having an undersea realm. Okay. So. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think the demon demons and devils are a big part, and angels and all that. I really like using those kinds of things in my games. Um, I really like having things like that drive my my campaigns um, and my stories. I'm not real convinced that these guys as written in here are the kinds of things I'm going to use. Um, so, I mean, I'll pull the stats that they give me and, and make whatever stories I want, but it'd be better. Right. It'd, be, it'd be awesome if they had the, st- the stories that, that inspired me. Yeah. So. Well, I, I, what's really funny is, uh, if you look at the, um, the, the poll that he has down below, one of the questions is how well, uh, the last question is: Do you feel like these three cults are distinct and recognizable? But in the Baphomet and the Grozd's cults description, he talks about them being similar. He talks about decadent nobles, uh-huh. you know, and one of them do deprave things at night to innocent townsfolk, and and one of them do deprave things that is carnal in nature. Yeah, I although mean, although I actually felt like that was the one thing that, that they did well. I, I mean, yes, they're both decadent nobles and he describes them that way, but one of them seems like savage and violent and the other one seems about uh, lust and, and that kind of stuff, right? And so, Well, to me, those it's, yeah, insanity, it, it's insanity, violence, and lust. Yes. It's really what they are. Yeah. Insanity, I, 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 violence, right, but, it, but, it, but it says if you came across one of the cults, so if you're just seeing a cult member, can you tell the difference? Only if they are performing the horrible acts that are right in, you know, right in front of you, which... Well. Oh, I, mean, I don't know, Sam. I don't. I don't know if I'd agree with that. I'm not sure. I. I, I if I. Well, if they're I decadent have... nobles. So during the day, if you look at them, you're thinking, "Oh, they're, those are the nobles of the town." Well, sure, but then you're not looking them looking at them as cultists. When you see them as cultists, they're. I think they they could be fairly eh. distinctive. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess. I th- I feel like that was the one question that I could answer positively on. You know, the, when, when I look at dra- uh, Grazd, my answer is, is the so-so. It kind of makes sense, but it doesn't grab me. When I look at uh, Baphomet, my answer is the uh, pretty bad. I don't really see much resemblance to, to what I want from Baphomet. Uh, and when I look at Demogorgon, I'm like, uh, yeah, you can keep your Cthulhu out of my Demogorgon. I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, so they kind of scale to from from bad to, to better. Yeah, as I, I go did. Through those polls. I- I did terrible, pretty bad, pretty bad, and I guess, but they okay. could be better. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I, fair. You know, I don't. Know. This uh, I, it's only because I usually really like James Wyatt's yeah article, and this one really falls down for me. So you know, if it's the only bad one, that's okay. I guess. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> well, and, and it's again, it's not final. I'm sure they're still working on this. Oh, stuff, right? absolutely, absolutely. And we never, and we're way past time, and, and I have, didn't get a chance to yeah. talk about the other article at all. But I'm excited to see the re, the possible return of Yugalos, and we'll leave it at that. 
because I really, again, <laughs> demons, devils, Did and you, I really... Do you want to say something else? No, I... I I, I'm excited to see the return of Yugalos, and th- that article seems to imply that I'm going to get that. Yugalos, those are daemons, weren't they? That was the other name. Yeah, they were daemons. Although the, the poll was pretty overwhelming that people wanted to be called Yugalos. Well, but wait a minute. Yugalos was a type of daemon. There were, there were, Nikol- there were Nikolos, there were uh, Piskalos, or whatever they were called. They were like fish guys. Those are, those are uh, all types of Yugalos. Ugh. They, they were demons. They were demons in earlier editions, and then in second edition they became Yugalos. They stayed Yugalos in third, and then fourth edition didn't have them really at all. And they became huh. they became other things. And so that was mm-hmm. the, that was the, one of the that was the big question he asked is they've they've had these many many these had lots of different names. Which name should we go with? And and uh, go over, back over fifty percent of them said said Yugalos. That's too bad because <laughs> well Damon made more sense because it was. Halfway between demon and devil. It's not too bad. It's not too bad for me because I started using them in second edition, and so that's how I know them. So there, uh-huh. <laughs> Grognard. I know it. All right, all right. That's all the time we have for that episode. This episode. All right. All right. We want to thank our sponsor, Noble Knight Games, as well as you guys, all of our listeners, for supporting us by shopping at Amazon and D&D Classics through our affiliate links. Of course, go to our affiliate links over at thetomeshow.com. Also, you can get a hold of us at thetomeshow.com or email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Or you can call our famous biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That's 919-BIZ-TOME. Until next time, this is Jeff Grinder signing out for myself, Sam Dillon, our man on the streets over there near Daggerford, checking out the Dragonspear Castle, Randall Walker. Bye-bye. Keep on gaming, Tomites. (laughs) 